This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, bringing you the Socialism Conference. No one is coming to save us but us. Grassroots movements for social change confront a critical juncture today. We need visionary politics, collective strategy, and compassionate communities now more than ever. In a moment of political uncertainty, the Socialism Conference, this September 1st through 4th in Chicago, will once again be a vital gathering space for today's left. At Socialism 2023, join thousands of activists, organizers, abolitionists, and socialists to learn from each other and from history, assess ongoing struggles, build community, and experience the energy of in-person gatherings. Featured speakers at Socialism 2023 will include Naomi Klein, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Robin D.G. Kelly, Harsha Walia, Kelly Hayes, Dina Gillio Whitaker, Bettina Love, Sophie Lewis, Malcolm Harris, Ilya Budreitskis, and many, many more. I will also, once again, be speaking at the Socialism Conference doing a live dig. The Socialism Conference is brought to you by Haymarket Books. Visit socialismconference.org to learn more and register now. Register before July 7th for the early bird discounted rate. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. The anti-trans politics currently fueling right-wing reaction is fundamentally centered upon the figure of the trans child. It is a classic American child safety panic that warns parents against a perverted woke culture that just might turn their normal boy into a girl, or vice versa. The entire conflict, however, is premised on the conventional wisdom that trans children are something new. In fact, they are not. My interview today is with Jules Gill Peterson, the author of the remarkable book, Histories of the Transgender Child. This is a really insightful episode about the history of trans medicine, trans children, and really comprehensively about trans politics. Before we get rolling, it's listeners just like you listening right now, making contributions at patreon.com slash the dig that make it possible for me to spend so much time reading complex books like this one and then spending days preparing to interview the authors of those books and then also paying everyone who helps make the show happen, including all the wonderful people making very lovely but very expensive narrative pieces for the dig presents our new documentary series. If you appreciate what we do at The Dig, please know the only way we can put out every episode for free so that all people can listen, regardless of your ability to pay, is because those of you who can afford to contribute do so. So, if that's you, please take a moment to do so. Now. We also have books, tote bags, and mugs to send supporters in the U.S. who contribute $10 or more a month. And supporters anywhere on Earth contributing any amount at all get our wonderful weekly newsletter by email. Please contribute now. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. There is a link in the show notes. Click that link. It'll just take a few minutes. Okay. Here's Jules Gill-Peterson, a historian at Johns Hopkins University and the author of Histories of the Transgender Child. Her next book, A Short History of Trans Misogyny, will be published next year by Verso. 
Jules Gill-Peterson. Welcome to The Dig. Thank you so much for having me. You published your book in 2018. And at the time, of course, politics around trans rights was plenty contentious. But in the half decade since, trans people have, have become caught up in a rejuvenated culture war, waged not only by the right, but also revealingly by segments of the center. And in trans children perhaps also cis children portrayed as being at risk of of being made trans. They're really front and center right now. Before we get into your book, why did this conflict reach the heights that it has at the moment that it has on the terms that it did? How, how in other words, would, would you periodize this recent conflict? I really appreciate that as a starting point, because even as I was finishing up my book, you know, hate to say it, but felt very strongly that if I could foresee the future, that I was foreseeing something more or less like this. You know, I think there are a number of answers to that question. I don't think there's one reason that trans youth or children's gender have become the subject of such intense moral panic and extreme politicking. I think some of it has nothing to do with them. Some of this is just you know, a very long history uh, in the United States, certainly a national history of really kind of grounding authoritarian or even just state-facing projects in general, including liberal versions of them, in the the policing of sex and gender uh, as kind of ways to, to do statecraft, whether your statecraft is supposed to be benevolent or revanchist. Some of it, I think, you know, are the, the grisly returns of identity politics. I think the way trans people were sort of told to wait their turn by the proponents of same-sex marriage, creating a number of kind of vacuums uh, after the the limited success of that campaign in 2015, where we then started to see a shift towards anti-trans as the replacement for anti-gay. But I think there's a much larger story here that's about the utility of policing gender, actually, and particularly of scapegoating trans people to authoritarian movements. And that's not something that has only just happened the last 10 years. Uh, There are more than just rhymes with the 1920s and 1930s and the sort of utility of gender both to the liberal nation state, but the liberal nation state in its kind of kissing cousin relationship with authoritarianism and fascism. And I think that some of the kinds of struggles that for me trans children have to navigate uh, because they've kind of been built around them are very old indeed. And so there's certainly a story I could tell that's about the usual suspects, the Christian right, the absolute idiocy, which I'm sure I'll be elaborating on today, of, of medical gatekeepers and their inability to understand the harms that they do playing right into the hands of right wing politicians, a story that talks about QAnon and the Proud Boys. And all sorts of things like that, or a history of TERFs and gender critical people in the UK. But I actually think, you know, one of the real answers is that, you know, as my book sort of digs into, gender itself is deeply associated with childhood. And the kind of question of who we become as gendered people has sort of been articulated through the question of who children become as they grow. And so it's not really surprising to me that we're in the grips of sort of you know, what might be the millionth moral panic around kids, gender and sexuality, but the fact that it's so persistent, and also can get so bad so fast, I think in in, in one way, you know, gives me a lot of pause um, to actually deflate kind of the present as exceptional and understand this as part of, you know, maybe even centuries long struggles. 
You write of the, quote, effects of a culture in which the delusional adoration of the rosy figure of the child abuts the most heinous quotidian modes of violence in the lives of real children. The book is obviously about the history of trans children, but how does that figure of the child more generally in society, how does that structure the history of of the trans child over the century plus period you're analyzing and through today? Yeah, quite deeply. I mean, one of the weird things is that when you get underneath the ideological, the ideologically constructed battles over whatever the hell people think being trans and a child really is, you get underneath it and you're like, oh, actually, the root problems here are just the way we treat children. And so talking about that version of the child, this sort of rosy cheeked, innocent, vulnerable, ignorant, helpless child, you know, I'm talking about the invention of the modern figure of the child in late 19th sort of Victorian culture. And the notion of children on the one hand as in need of protection, but on the other hand as useless, as inferior, as less than adults. Uh, And that, you know, actually the construction of a culture of sentimentality, including political sentimentality around that figure of the child at the turn of the century in the progressive era, you know, has become a kind of master grammar for doing politics in the US. It's why whoever is fighting on behalf of the children or whoever, you know, is the most proficient at protecting children, right, could sort of couch their entire political project in that grammar. More practically, what treating children as inferior uh, and frankly, you know, in need of guidance and superintendence also does is facilitate by sort of naturalizing that distinction as a distinction based on age, it facilitates a series of relationships of political domination that are much harder to justify otherwise. And so I'm always happy to to underline the fact that the strange creature that we call the child as a legal fiction in the United States, this child who in theory right, should not be working in a factory and should be in school. This child who legally needs to be protected from sexuality by being ironically unable to consent to sex at all. Um, This kind of strange child, you know, who can't have the right to vote and doesn't have any civil rights relative to adults, but that's in their best interest. This strange creature who magically ages out of all of that at 18 or 21. Well, one of the sort of reasons that that child had to come into being as the kind of quasi-property of adults is because genuinely after, you know, the end of the Civil War and the white supremacist backlash against Reconstruction, it was less clear than ever how a sort of, um, you know, concept of American freedom that had been based in the dispossession of being transformed into chattel, that is to say, in racial slavery, you know, how now the distinction between a person and a thing would operate in a country where, you know, the freedmen, you know, black freedmen, you know, represented such a, a sort of threat to the political order. And one of the answers to that question that the United States invents for itself is this figure of the child as a kind of delightful, cute, helpless creature who needs to be protected (laughs) because they're kind of like a piece of property. And if we hold that, right, origin story in mind, then all of a sudden it makes total sense why people are absolutely losing their minds over trans youth because trans youth arrive and say, actually, parents, guardians, doctors, government, teachers, everyone is wrong about me. I know something about myself that you got absolutely incorrect. And I'm going to make some demands on you to reevaluate our relationship, or I'm going to make a sort of minimal claim to self-determination by wanting to change my appearance, change my name or pronouns, and maybe eventually medically transition. And so if we see that as a sort of 
instantiation of quasi property daring to speak and to act you know of their own will well then all of a sudden we realize like being a trans child is one of many very difficult kinds of childhoods where actual people in the world find themselves you know not just thrown into a world and culture they didn't you know help author but also one in which they're told to just sit down, shut up, and really not, you know, make very many moves until they grow up. And those are just intolerable conditions for so many children. But really, in that sense, trans children are only one in a kind of particularly American litany um, of children who are really harmed by this concept of the capital C child. Yeah. And for listeners who haven't heard my interview with Paul Renfro, he has a lot of great analysis of of this and how the war on crime, from the war on crime and, and drugs through QAnon and then most recently, this you know war on woke CRT trans children. It's really it's quite a powerful through line that the reactionary politics are so frequently organized around child protection, but not a real child, right? A sort of fantasized child. Although real children have to live in the shadow of those um, kinds of decisions. Yeah, I mean, in an interview I just did on uh, Public Ed with Jack Schneider and Jennifer Berkshire, they sort of reference the specter of the real child in the sense of real young people becoming increasingly progressive, like objectively, <laughs> that, that being an objective reality, truly panicking the right. So there is this spectral child, but then there actually is the um, intergenerational political conflict that does seem to be emergent for real. No, and I think that, that that's that's part of what the, the that's part of what, right, like sort of making children ghostly forces them to sort of do all of these things that have kind of informal meaning in our culture, but actually ignite some of the most profound anxieties, in part because also oops, all of us used to be kids. We all have a memory of being mistreated, right? Yeah. And so it's not even totally abstract. It's not just generational conflict. It's also like oh no, I actually remember what it was like to find myself in a situation where I was at a disadvantage and also realize all the adults in the room are withholding a concept to make sense of that power imbalance. And, you know, it's like, there's also that. I think people can really truly identify with why young pe people are pissed off today. That's not just like on the issues, right? Like, yes, it's existential climate change. Yes, it's, you know, crises in political economy. Yes, it's the destruction of democracy. Yes, it's being saddled with debt, right? But it's just so it's so clear to me that in every case where young people are organizing and acting politically and expressing themselves, the most important rearguard maneuver on the right and in the center, even the center left, is to disqualify that, to disappear it, right? To render it ghostly again and say, nothing's happening here, right? Trans kids are just a conversation, right, on the right that is between adults, between state legislatures and, you know, priests and pastors. But like on the sort of center left, the conversation around trans kids, the rightful version of it is supposed to be a conversation between parents and doctors. And so it's like, wait a minute, who did we just subtract from this, you know, <laughs> equation? The actual fucking kids themselves. It's, it's just really ridiculous. The book is above all else a project to, quote, visit as much destruction as possible upon one central libel that limits the livelihood of trans children, that they have no history, that they are fundamentally new and somehow, therefore, deserving of less than human recognition. Where did this idea of the newness of trans childhood come from? And and what purpose has that served in the political fights over the legitimacy of trans existence in general and of, of trans children's existence in particular? 
Yeah, this equation with newness, you know, sort of has a sort of biographical realness um, or autobiographical realness to me. You know, part of it is as a concession to a way that I found myself, you know, sort of find my own imagination about the past and the present shrunk by the culture I lived in, which is to say that, you know, during my PhD, I was starting to research uh, kind of both the figure of the gay child and the figure of the trans child, you know, in a relatively more presentist sense for my dissertation. But this was right around the time that gay kids in particular had suddenly been, you know, kind of vaulted into public presence. I started my PhD the same semester at Rutgers University, where, you know, a first year student, Tyler Clementi, died by suicide an event that, among other things, led to the It Gets Better project that was founded by Dan Savage. And there was just all of a sudden all this attention on the idea of gay youth, uh, some gay youth at least, as vulnerable in danger of bullying. But by gay youth, I mean like people who in the present tense of childhood identify that way, right? Not adults who said, oh, I was so gay as a kid, but didn't come out until college or come out until, you know, well into adulthood. Um, But as I was starting to look at the differences between that gay child and the trans child, I was like, well, our culture barely even knows there are trans kids. And it was that kind of era of like just those first few journalistic exposés. We haven't even gotten to Jesse Single's first weirdo Atlantic cover story. <laughs> so we're still in the era where this is much more cringeworthy. Barbara Walters is interviewing a five-year-old Jazz Jennings on 2020. I mean, these are just like weird pieces. But like, because of what's happened since then, they look very benign. But there is this sort of cloak of like, this strange new generation, transgender children, children <laughs> who tell their parents that they are a different gender than the gender that they everyone thought they were. What will they do? And it was actually very young kids, right? Like a lot of these like jazz really had nothing to do with medicine, right? There's no medical transition at that age. But to the extent that there were just a few kind of journalistic entrees into imagining what trans youth might be, the ones who might go on puberty blockers, especially, this was all framed as unprecedented. As we've never seen this before, and it was framed as a kind of, you know, typical family romance narrative. So the parents are struggling, So the narratives are often about the parents, and we're supposed to to sympathize with how difficult it is for them. And then the psychologist or the clinician comes in to provide reassuring, scientifically-based, we're told, evidence that we can do this or that because we know gender is in the brain by this age. And all of that was all presented as this like sheer, sheer new, right? It's not just that trans people as a public object of consumption were new to most Americans, like kids were literally being presented as this has never happened before. And even myself just assumed, I just assumed that that was probably true when it came to medical transition. I had never heard of a young person transitioning, right, prior to the 1990s. But in the course of my dissertation research, I started, I still remember I was reading a, a medical journal article from the 60s about a clinic, you know, it was called a case study report on different trans people at a clinic. And in the footnotes, I was like, hold on, a couple of these patients are like 16. I was like, what? A teenager <laughs> was transitioning in the 1960s? Like, I didn't know that. Never read a word about it in any trans history or trans studies scholarship And doctors themselves didn't really seem to say anything about it. And so all of a sudden, I felt caught. I was like, hold on. This entire kind of culture, you know, media industry is revving up to define trans children as new. And I just seen glaring evidence that that is not true. That in fact, there might have been kids transitioning like a pretty substantial 
time prior, 50, 60 years prior. And so I became very concerned with what happens when a whole population is framed as a new arrival. The idea that trans youth, as if they somehow showed up on this earth, or at best, that they just never could come out before at a young age and so had never made requests on their families or teachers or doctors before, that, you know, sort of pigeonholing an entire cohort of people as new arrivals on the face of the earth attaches a gigantic question mark to their existence. Because if they've just got here and you don't really want them around, well, then this is the moment to try and stamp them out. And so I became really concerned as I dug into the history, not just that history contradicts the way trans children are being narrated as new, but that but that it really does become a libel on their existence because it becomes a setup for their eradication. And as I dug into the history of actually the centrality of children to the medicalization of gender, I began to understand that that um, kind of eradicatory impulse, the idea that if we use children to find out what makes people trans, we can stop people from being trans. That's what really kind of radicalized me first in an empirical sense, but also in a political sense to say like this narrative of trans kids are new is absolutely going to be deadly. And I hate to say it, but here we are five years later since the book came out. Well, that has been proven to be true in ways that horrify me beyond even what I could have ever imagined, you know, maybe 10 years ago when I started this research. Does the fact that trans identity and trans childhood are are not new mean that trans identity and trans childhood are universal throughout time and space, or or are they, along with cis identity, contingent? And I'm thinking here about my recent interview on, on Christopher Chitty's book on mm. the on the political. Yeah, it's really what a book. I love that book. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, and just you know, on the political contingency of homosexuality and anti homosexual anti homosexual politics throughout this incredibly long sweep of capitalist history. How how should we think of contingency as it relates to trans identity, given that the premise of so many political fights over, over it seem to involve the question of its universality and thus implicitly its its naturalness for for opponents of trans rights, of course, these are these are novel perversions wrought by a a, a sick, desacralized culture. And then for for some supporters of trans rights that that the trans people have always existed. If if the entire system of sex and gender, which we're going to get into a lot of the, the specifics of this history soon that that you detail um, so fascinatingly in your book, if this entire system of sex and gender under which transness and cisness makes sense as categories only emerges in the 20th century, what what does that mean? I'm so glad you asked this question because it, it's actually, let me just say, very rare indeed that I get to follow up the claim that trans kids aren't new um, with the clarification that that does not therefore mean they have always existed in their present form, which, you know, I understand why people are attached to that fantasy of continuity, but there are reasons that I think that that's actually a very disturbing fantasy. So let me try and speak to a number of levels here because, I mean, you're exactly right. You know, for the purposes of my book, I'm historicizing a particular regime a very modern regime of a sex binary and later a gender binary um, because the term gender as we use it today actually has an incredibly recent advent, which I'm sure we'll get into. But in any case, this kind of project 
right, of classifying human beings and also administering uh, governments, you know, government, you know, both in the sense of politically, but also in the sort of Foucauldian sense, governmentality, you know, administrating um, populations through sex, gender and reproduction, you know, that those are, you know, very particular historically contingent arrangements of power uh, and that have very particular effects on people. And so in that context, it's in that context that trans as it exists today in the global north, which is to say trans as a kind of boundary crossing endeavor, either understood as departure from what is assigned at birth, right? Or in a maybe more mid 20th century idiom, a kind of crossing from one gendered position to another, uh, or, you know, the idiom could be sex change. In other words, a kind of movement through a binary, across a binary, outside of a binary, however you want to narrate that. That that doesn't make sense unless you have that binary, right? And that kind of sex binary simply takes centuries to be created. It is a product, in particular, in my reading of it, of the convergence of three huge historical events. The kind of global colonial reach, both of settler colonialism, right, but also overseas colonialism, the primitive accumulation processes that introduce industrial wage labor capitalism throughout the world and replace prior modes of of production, and the history of the transatlantic slave trade, which Black feminists have, you know, very importantly understood to have been, among many other things, about the ungendering um, of enslaved Africans. And so that this sort of production of a sex binary where there is man and woman or male and female in the first place for trans to trouble is itself the product of a very devastating kind of Western history of capitalist colonial dispossession, and in particular forms of racial domination, whether we're talking about settler alibis, right, that go all the way back to the 16th century when you have Spanish, you know, conquistadors uh, claiming that they have to overthrow indigenous political structures because they found, quote unquote, men dressed as women, you know, in the ruling class. And then <laughs> as good Christians, they have to therefore overthrow those groups, steal their land and exploit them. But, you know, all of that, you know, to me, so part of what I would say to put it, you know, sort of more generally is that what's interesting about trans history is that that word trans, it's not, I mean, I could say it falls apart. I'm delighted for it to fall apart personally. But but the way I put it in my book is that trans is a multiplicity. There is actually not just no universal version of trans. There's no consistent version of trans over time. But there's no consistent version of trans in any time or place in the history of the United States, because the categories of sex and gender of which trans is derivative in this system, right, are entirely coordinate to particularly class, um, but also race, you know, in U.S. history. And so part of what that means for me is that the arrival of trans itself is part of the Western history of producing universalisms, right, through the dispossession of a multitude of prior ways of life. That's why there are hundreds, if not thousands, of other concepts, words in many different languages, many different kinship, religious, and political structures globally and historically um, that are not trans, but that actually over time are being replaced by trans, right? Um, and so that's like a very, that's a conversation that I think is really interesting at a sort of huge, sort of long durée kind of historical scale. But in any case, what that means for me in practice, coming back, 
you know, to say the 20th century, is that when we look backwards in time, part of what it means to say trans kids are not new is not to say that the kinds of trans kids we meet today, but just to say like, there is no one kind of that kid, you're not necessarily going to find them replicated in the past, you'll find a lot of patterns of commonality. But most of that has to do with how a regime of, uh, of sort of you know, gripping individuals and populations through sex and gender as an element of statecraft or governmentality, the ways that that shifts over time. And so part of what my book tells the story of is the sort of production of a recognizable system of sex and gender, the one that we still largely inherit today. And that's one in which trans people, like intersex people, play a pretty pivotal role of having essentially been used, abused, and turned into living laboratories to create these uh, these legal and medical and biological fictions we call binary gender, you know, we call man and woman, we call male and female, that have very real-world effects. Um, but, you know, in that sense, I just sort of am a you know, I'm a historian, I'm a historicist, I don't think there's any way to separate some sort of ontological transness that exists independent of all of that, nor do I think we should have to, right? I think part of the demand for a universal category is precisely to oppose the genocidal aspirations or moralizing invectives of anti-trans rhetoric in this moment. Um, but they're, they're just sort of impossible hurdles to clear. You'll never marshal evidence, right? Every neuroscientist who's like, look, Jules, it's your transgender brain. I'm like, uh, absolutely incorrect. What you're telling me is my transgender brain is not even what you think those words mean. You're wrong, right? And it's like, we're never, I don't think we have to have that kind of proof um, in order to be taken seriously. So my argument is that historical existence is enough. If trans people have been around, then then we're here and we're already here in the present. So there's no real need to sort of have recourse to a story to prove that we deserve to exist or not. On the contrary, history helps us understand the power relationships that trans people have been embedded in. And even if on the whole, most trans people have been dealt a pretty bad hand by all of that. By the same token, we need to talk about how ethnocentric sometimes, you know, trans politics or a politics of gender can really be when it's an identity politics because it presumes that there is a sort of one size fits all model. Yeah. And and you mentioned there the centrality of of race. And I want to talk about that a little more. You write, quote, by the 1960s and 1970s, as formal gender clinics began to open in the United States, their overwhelmingly white clientele was contrasted with the continuing use of willfully faulty homosexuality and schizophrenia diagnoses to reject outright black trans children's personhood and to subject them to potentially infinite detention in psychiatric facilities as well as more literal forms of incarceration. And this medical archive that you rely on is itself inevitably very white and the black trans youth who appear in your history often end up in a, this carceral network of police, jails, psychiatric institutions. But on the other hand, these white children who did have access to the clinic, that access, quote, also silenced them, making their experimental treatment means to other ends. What, what accounts for this, this distinction between how white and black trans youths were treated throughout the 20th century and how, and how they continue to be treated today? How should those divides structure the way we think about this history? Well, one way to to sort of narrate what prefaces that moment in the 60s and 70s 
you know, sort of very briefly is to say that, you know, the scientific and medical or the, even just the taxonomical production of binary sex, of sexual differentiation into a kind of mutually exclusive male and female schema, the kind of binary, you know, that people are still anxiously defending in the pages of the Wall Street Journal, <laughs> looking at you, Colin Wright. Um, you know, that concept in the history of the Western sciences was explicitly a derivative of race science. So in the 19th century, towards the end of the century, you have scientists arguing very explicitly that white people are defined by being the most sexually differentiated. That is to say that white civilization, that's their language, um, is superior in part because male and female are the furthest apart phenotypically. Men and women are the most different, the most differentiated, the most specialized. And the so-called other races are more mixed in sex um, and also more hypersexualized. In the early 20th century, as we start to see the emergence of the specialties in the sciences, the life sciences, and in medical practice, that will go on to create the medical regimes that, among other things, uh, encompass trans people. So I'm talking here about the advent of embryology, but particularly the advent um, of sexology and endocrinology. You know, these fields in the life sciences in the early 20th century are also explicitly dedicated to race science in the sense that they're part of eugenics projects. Uh, and so there's a sort of, you know, understanding of human variation as potentially dysgenic. So, you know, perhaps people who are understood to be intersex or, you know, inverts or gay and lesbian or trans in the idioms of the day are seen by some as dysgenic. But but the version that actually ends up being, you know, significant clinically is this sort of um, positive eugenics project. The idea of essentially scientifically harnessing sex. And by sex, people mean both sexual reproduction and sexual differentiation, sexual development over the lifespan, right? Those two things don't quite coincide very neatly. You know, one is imagined more genetically, but but endocrine system is sort of the huge fad of the first half of the, of the 20th century. People really feel like, ah, we're going to perfect the human species by getting a handle on these tiny little chemical messengers that circulate through the blood and not only greatly affect how the body grows over time, including puberty, sexual differentiation, reproductivity, old age, menopause, and so on, but also clearly deeply influenced psychology, right? This is sort of where the idea of quote-unquote sex hormones come from. And at root, this notion that testosterone, you know, doesn't just make the body male, but also produces a, a sense of manhood, produces masculinity as such, and, you know, so too for, for estrogen and um, femininity, so in any ways, you know, this is an explicitly racialized discourse. It is for like everything. The fact that this has an effect on trans medicine, just to say, isn't unique or exceptional. Right. It's just like completely true of all fields of medicine. But all of that really basically means that as science and medicine are gaining greater technical access to influencing how sex grows uh, over the course of the lifespan, in other words, they're gaining the technical means first through plastic surgeries and later through synthesizing uh, organic and then synthetic kinds of hormone compounds, an ability essentially to influence sexual development or sexuation right, at different moments in life, they essentially understand these to be part about 
racial uplift. And so there's this immediate idea that like, well, white people are on the one hand, the most plastic, their sex is the most amenable to change because white people are the most reinventable and the most valuable and can reach the highest heights of human achievement. And so they deserve, this is also just an alibi for why they apparently deserve all of these medical treatments. Uh, And then that, you know, black and brown people in particular are read as atavistic, as kind of stolid and in some ways locked in, in their development, less capable of transformation. And so among other things, less capable of quote unquote, changing sex. And so all of that, you know, that's explicitly racist, explicitly eugenic prior to World War II, you can go back and look at all this stuff. No one's mincing words, right? What happens after World War II is obviously scientific racism falls out of favor. And so that all of that racial rhetoric disappears. But then we arrive in the 1950s, which is when the concept of gender, you know, as a kind of psychological dimension of sex is coined. And I simply argue that that emphasis on the plasticity of sex as the sort of destiny of white civilization is encoded into gender. And so the idea that gender is fundamentally plastic, that it has some capacity to grow at least and change at least early on in life, and that it's also plastic in the sense that your sense of psychological self, your interior self might disagree with the sort of evidence of your physical anatomy or your genotype, that sense of plasticity is actually coded as white. In other words, the ability to change and be changed. And this is really critical because doctors will show up and be like, you're abnormal, but the good news is you're white, so your gender can be made normal. And that's the kind of clinical context in the 1950s that comes into force, first basically to force intersex people into a binary appearing sex that aligns with their ostensible gender, um, but then gets transferred over to trans medicine. So when we get to the 1960s and 70s, essentially the notion of sex change or transition, to use our vernacular, that has kind of grown up in the scientific and medical milieu is literally conceptually associated with white people and with white bodies and white psyches. And so without having to ever say anything, you know, these clinicians can simply use all of the bizarre arcane gatekeeping gatekeeping criteria that they've created in this time period and use it to always basically be like, yeah, white people, okay, I could kind of <laughs> see you if you're very passable and very respectable. But if you go back and talk to I mean, I always think of Miss Major, who was a you know Stonewall veteran and you know black trans woman who's still around. She talks about how back you know in the 1960s people knew in Chicago or New York, like don't even bother going to that one doctor's office where trans ladies go if you're black because he doesn't see girls like that. He's not going to see you as uh, capable of transition, right? And that might manifest rhetorically as, well, you don't dress well and you don't speak appropriately or you're a sex worker, but it really carries this loaded history where gender as a concept and particularly gender's plasticity was racialized white historically. And so that to me is sort of the important first half of the 20th century history that we really start to see pay off in a terrible way, right? In the second half, when we just look at clinical demographics. And so you could have two identical children, and I talk about different, you know, pairings of them in my book, where you have two, like, say, you know, 16-year-old self-identified trans girls, and if one is white, and maybe she has parental support, 
where, you know, she's just writing letters to doctors trying to get help. Like, they'll at least listen to her to some extent, and they'll recognize that she may indeed be trans. But an identical identical Black trans girl is more likely to be told that her articulation of herself as a girl is evidence of mental illness, of a psychotic break with reality, of delusion, of schizophrenia, or of a developmental disability, or pathological homosexuality, which is still a mental illness at the time, right? And so this sort of stark racial divide actually has has more to it than just naked on its face racial hatred, right? It right. actually reflects a material history of how sex and gender have been constructed and then, you know, doctors and, and science are sort of one set of gatekeepers to this, but constructed as elements in a kind of race science. And and that means that the the, the history of the, the clinic that, that your book does is a different history than than that of someone like the the legendary Sylvia Rivera, major trans figure who for most of her life identified as as gay or drag, a drag queen or a transvestite, and and you know, of her organization, the street transvestite action revolutionary star or it's not a different history from your book your book your your book does discuss that but it's sort of pointing to that as the outside of the clinic what's excluded yeah i mean i think one of the strange issues we have to wrestle with in trans history but this obviously radiates directly into the present is that one of the just bizarre from an literally from an empirical perspective, like I am a historian, I do consider myself an empiricist, <laughs> is that medicine acts like it's the only game in town talking about trans people, right? I mean, to the point where, again, this authorizes people today to act as if there would be no trans people if not for medical transition. And frankly, it leads to the conspiratorial version of that where people like to imagine that trans people are somehow tricked or pressured into transition, which L-O-fucking-L, if you ever talk to one (laughs) trans person about what it's like to try and transition this country... Wow, would that there were some pressure. That would be really nice. But anyways, one of the incredible lies about that, right, is that almost no trans people ever medically transition because it's so impossible to get access to healthcare. The entire uh, system of trans healthcare is designed to stop you from transitioning by putting up as many roadblocks as possible. They used to be bizarre diagnostic criteria. Today, they're more private insurance criteria to do the same, or now your state just banned it. Um, but, but So what that actually means is that most trans people actually historically are not ever interacting with clinicians. And so the, the version of medical history that we get is important because it has had this epistemological domination of how we think about trans people. But empirically, most trans people never interact with those institutions. So Silvia Rivera, you know, entire generations of trans people that use different language for themselves, gay, drag queen, transvestite, right? They're, they're actually the demographic numerical majority of trans people in the 20th century, but they haven't even been understood as the primary actors in trans history because they didn't interface with the right experts. And so some of that is just a story about class and race, right? You can go back and read different interviews with Rivera or Marsha P. Johnson, you know, say from the aftermath of Stonewall in the early 70s, you know, they'll talk about sometimes maybe wanting to transition this way or that way. I mean, there are lots of people who would have you know, tried to interface with the medical system if they had access, had the resources, had the time, weren't just fighting the police or trying to stay out of jail. But I mean, this is an issue I wrestle with in my book, right, is that even focusing on the history of medicine is actually incredibly misleading. It's really useful as an intellectual history and maybe as a history of biopower. But 
it's important to say that most people, most trans people are affected by that history indirectly, which is to say either by lack of access to this medical model that was created, you know, and kind of set up by the mid-1950s, or frankly, have been just working on their own to develop alternatives to it, whether by necessity or because they genuinely, you know, believe they can do it better. And in a lot of cases, I've got to say, I'm convinced that they could. You write, quote, In the late 19th and early 20th century life sciences, sex underwent two key transformations. Sex became synonymous with a concept of biological plasticity that made it an alterable morphology. And through experiments by largely eugenic scientists, it was racialized as a phenotype. The framing of sex through racial plasticity occurred in a broader scientific milieu in Europe and the United States that defined living organisms, both human and non-human, as naturally bisexual, a mix of masculine and feminine forms. We just covered the relationship between sex's plasticity and it, and it being racialized. But what do you mean that the natural sciences held that living organisms were naturally bisexual rather than masculine or feminine simply. What sort of biological theory was this and and why was it influential in the way that it was when it was? Yeah, this is one of my favorite annals in the history of science. (laughs) I was like, like, okay. (laughs) You know, I mean, I think we all, we kind of take for granted, you know, ideologically, if just as common sense in the present, like, oh, well, I I guess, like, we've always just thought sex is binary or gender is binary, right? You know, because that's the way it's handed (laughs) down to us. Even if we disagree with it, we probably take for granted that certainly if that's what we were taught, say, you know, in high school science, that it probably is true. And it's like, nope. Actually, what's really fascinating is that, you know, for the first half of the 20th century, and this comes out of 19th century science, like absolutely credible, high quality Western scientists do not believe that male and female are mutually exclusive. Also, do not believe anyone is really male or female. So bisexual here does not mean what it means today. Bisexual in this time period means kind of literally two sexes, right? A sort of sense that... um, you know, animal life in particular, because a lot of this scientific data is drawn from animals first, certainly. It actually even goes back centuries to kind of just the informal expertise of farmers and people who've noticed that like, oh, yeah, well, you know, if you castrate, you know, an animal, you know, it actually might physiologically transform and become, you know, sort of more feminine um, in its appearance, and also its behavior might change. And so some of the earliest endocrinological experiments are simply removing gonads from animals to see what happens to them or transplanting gonads of the so-called opposite sex. Starting with Chickens in the Starting with century, chickens, I know. <laughs> so we owe a lot to poor chickens. Okay, transsexual chickens were out there being forcibly trans. If we want to talk about someone actually being forcibly trans, it's just animals. Also, guinea pigs and rats. It's, this still happens today. It's still a, a huge scientific endeavor. Uh, And so basically, what they find, right, is they're like, this is weird. Um, Male animals can be made like fairly female and also like their behavior changes, right? They might mate with males, they might act, you know, all these gender coded behaviors, right? And so basically, the thesis emerges that like, well, that makes sense, because, you know, here embryology comes into play and embryology suggests you know, that early on in fetal fetal life, when we're talking, you know, not just at the level of cells, but when rudimentary organs are forming, it turns out all the sexual organs 
just form out of the same stuff, like the tubercules and all these rudimentary genital structures. But also that like literally what makes um, a fetus male or female is actually, you know, again, apologies to creationists is in fact, not at all determined at conception. Uh, And in fact, there are all sorts of complicated environmental factors, as much as genetic factors that influence, you know, which way an animal turns out. And of course, part of this also is the fact that science has to contend with, you know, the abundant evidence that not all animals or humans are exclusively male or female, that there are many, many, many variations and many examples of animals and humans that seem to be a mix of male and female. And they are, of course, naturally produced, right? There's nothing artificial going on. People are born that way or developed that way. And so basically, the thesis of science comes to be that this is perfectly fine, that sex is bisexual, which is to say that sex starts out in everyone with the potential to become, to some degree, more male than female or more female than male. And the idea is that, you know, the course of sexual differentiation for most people generally leads to one sex becoming visually predominant, visually, but that it doesn't necessarily mean there isn't some of the quote-unquote opposite sex still in you. And this just made sense culturally to a lot of people. They'd be like, well, you know, some men are more manly and some men are more sensitive, right? And (laughs) and some women are really just kind of gruff. And, you know, also some women are tall and some women are short, right? And it's a really interesting thing that this was totally common science. And and that notion that, like, you know, we had seen and witnessed animals change sex, right? Someone as astute as Darwin, Charles Darwin, is like, yeah, you know, sometimes uh, farmers change the sex of their chickens. I bet humans could probably do the same thing under the right circumstances. And he's saying this in the 1860s. There are no circumstances known yet, right, to make a person... Um, on purpose sort of change from male to female, but it's largely believed by the turn of the 20th century that no one is really male or female. Sex is absolutely not binary in the way we understand it today. It's not mutually exclusive. Everyone is understood to have the potential to change sex and they don't lose that potential. I mean, everyone, right? I don't just mean intersex and trans people or in the vernacular of the time, inverts, gay and lesbian people who are understood to be mixed sex, literally the most normal men and women possible, regular, regular heterosexuals, right? We're understood to have technically a biological possibility of changing sex. That was just a normal part of biology. And it's that, you know, I'm not a romanticist about the past. So I'm not like, hey, I love this idea of sex. We should go back to it because it had a lot of problems, right? It basically turns male and female into phenotypes, right? Into kind of morphological tropes that are supposed to be the outcome of of development. And phenotype, I use that word on purpose in my book because it's highly racially charged. And that's the sort of link from what we were talking about earlier, the eugenic context of the sex binary and sex science, right? That's what links back to this discussion of bisexuality. So it's hardly innocent or in any way necessarily progressive. But I think it's always worth repeating because it means that like in our lifetime, like let me, this is such a funny, I never thought I would use this as an example. But President Biden is old enough that when he was young, this was the dominant view of sex (laughs) that like when President Biden was born, right? If you asked, you know, men of science, they would have been like, well, you know, he might look like a boy, but like technically he retains, you know, vestigial female biological components and under the right circumstances could become a girl, right? That's just normal science. So within our own lifetime, we've had this completely different uh, understanding of the sex binary in which, in fact, binary doesn't really exist ontologically. 
And you're not arguing, of course, like you just said, to be nostalgic for that, but it does complicate any any presumption about what traditional, so-called traditional understandings of sex and gender are, whether one is trying to shore up those embattled traditions or or tear them down. Exactly. Starting in the 1910s, children with so-called ambiguous sex became the subject of scientific and medical attention. But but the clinicians practicing and experimenting on these children with, with what was called hermaphrodism were not yet using hormones. This was decades ahead of the widespread the widespread availability of synthetic hormones. Instead, urological and plastic surgeons took the lead in imposing sex changes upon these children. You write, quote, intersex children were forced during these decades into a decisive role as the experimental subjects in whose bodies the abstract theories of endocrinology were translated into real medical technique for altering human sex. This is really pretty monstrous stuff, but what what was the medical practice and scientific frameworks that guided doctors at the time? And what was the role of endocrinology in this surgery-dominated approach, given that hormone therapy was absent? And lastly, how did these medical techniques impact the lives and bodies of, of intersex children? Yeah, I mean, so I narrate this as a sort of passage from you know, the kind of questions being asked in both laboratory science, so the people who are just changing the sex of rats and guinea pigs and pigeons and just, you know, they can do that kind of, you know, ad nauseum. They can't do that to people, right? I mean, even at the time in the early 20th century, that's not necessarily seen as, as you know, rigorous for a laboratory endocrinologist to, you know, ask people to come in off the street and sort of, you know, experiment on them that way. Um, and so that kind of question that Darwin had posed, though, right? Like, well, it seems that animals sometimes change their sex. I bet that could happen to humans under the right circumstance. Well, what that circumstance would be is the question that medical clinicians want to answer. How will we tr- take this body of science that's much more either theoretical kind of evolutionary biology or just sort of lab science, you know, based in plant and animal life? And how do we scale that up to human applicability? And so you need a captive population of people for whom it's not considered inhumane to essentially perform experiments on their bodies. And, you know, there is there's a smaller history in the U.S. of some of those experiments being done on prisoners, but by far the largest captive population are intersex newborns, infants, children, and teenagers. And part of what makes them captive is that they're precisely not adults, so they're not even getting to consent or not consent. Uh, to medical intervention. It's up to their parents. And, you know, basically parents do show up at these places like Johns Hopkins Hospital, which is really the focal point of my historical inquiry here. And this is the the Brady Urological Institute at Johns Hopkins at the time. That's right. Yeah. And so this is the first urology hospital period in the United States. Um, and it's a research hospital. And Hugh Hampton Young, who is this, you know, surgeon, plastic surgeon, among other things, uh, who, you know, heads up that institute, you know, understands part of the populations of patients he might see to include people whose sex is not outwardly obvious, or for whom some issue has arisen, right? It's not always like at birth, right? I think we often imagine, Maybe that intersex people are medicalized like at the moment of birth because their genitals are ambiguous, but that's actually not always the case. It could be later on in life. Um, 
During puberty, or often when someone is trying to get married, <laughs> which is how a lot of patients ended up at Hopkins, they're like, hi, I'm trying to marry, you know, my fiance, but the priest doesn't believe I'm a man or a woman. Could you please <laughs> um, confirm Just that I am? clarify that, yeah. Clarify that, right? And the doctors are sort of like, well, okay. So they have this intellectual project where they're like, well, we want people to be men and women because that's the norm and we don't really like, um, you know, the variation of human sex, but we admit that it exists. Um, and so what's really weird is we don't get synthetic hormones until... I mean, a few in the 1930s, but it's really the 1940s. It's World War II that changes that um, because a lot of U.S. military, uh, you know, investment in research yields just reliable testosterones and estrogens and other hormones for the first time. So prior to that era, all you can really do is try to intervene in someone's pre-existing endocrine system. So I, I, I kind of follow one kind of example over quite a large, quite a long period of the book. And that's, you know, particular um, adrenal intersex conditions, something that used to be called congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Say that five times fast. But, you know, the gist of it is that, <laughs> you know, there, there are situations in which, you know, your adrenal glands just sort of are very overactive, grow much larger than usual, and they secrete, you know, a particular, you know, cortisol hormone that has some effects on the pituitary gland, which in turn basically cause the body to secrete a lot of androgens. And so congenital, congenital adrenal hyperplasia, among other things, you know, results in children that otherwise probably would have been assigned female at birth, you know, to either be born appearing so convincingly male that they are assigned male at birth, or, um, you know, over the course of childhood as they're starting to develop or at puberty, they, you know, people who had been raised as girls start to aggressively essentially change their sex and become masculine, right? Um, in ways that are both alarming to some of them and their families, but also deeply confirming of an inner identity to others. But in either case, this is construed as a medical issue. And so one of the issues is that Hugh Hampton Young knows that it's the adrenal glands, you know, that are causing this, but there's no hormonal medication that can do anything about that. And so in order to try and suppress the effects of the adrenal glands, he has to take a surgical procedure. He has to take a surgical mindset. And so what he ends up deciding is like, well, what if I cut out part of each adrenal gland? Or what if I remove one of them entirely? Surely that means... If there's less of the organ in the body, it's secreting less, you know, of the hormones, it, it should slow down and reverse masculinization. So he develops these really, really dangerous, really dangerous surgical procedures for doing bilateral adrenalectomies, you know, as far back kind of as the 1920s. I mean, these are so dangerous that like patients die routinely and um, just recovering from these surgeries is not not a given. And just to say this, right, having congenital adrenal hyperplasia, there's no reason you have to have surgery. There's nothing like particularly dangerous about this condition. There are a few variations of it that have some health risks. But for most people, there's no reason that they have to be operated on. But of course, trying to change their sex is seen as so important. Young is basically doing these surgeries, refining them for years. And then after, you know, doing the adrenalectomies, he will do plastic surgery on the genitals to make them appear more binary, either to feminize, them, actually almost always to feminize them, because he's much better at 
vaginoplasty, then he has a phalloplasty, and also this involves a lot of clitoral amputation um, and a lot of you know things that have lasting lifetime effects on people's experience of their bodies. There's so many complications, never mind how traumatizing it is to be sexualized this way, to have your genitals altered or even, you know, in some cases partially removed um, without your permission. I mean, it's just really horrific stuff. His patients are dying. And on top of all of that, it doesn't work. It doesn't have any effect on the on the adrenal gland output. This does not cause patients to stop masculinizing and it doesn't feminize them at all. And so it's been this kind of manifest failure, but he's had this kind of carte blanche because making people into male or female is seen as so overridingly obvious as a kind of medical mission that, you know, and it's also one that all these lab scientists are very eager to read about, that there's total kind of support for this. But what ends up happening then is that eventually during World War II, right, there are now some estrogens that have been synthesized. And so, you know, as endocrinologists start to take on a more active role at the hospital at Johns Hopkins, you know, they hire this guy Lawson Wilkins, who's the first pediatric head of endocrinology at Johns Hopkins or anywhere in the U.S. And he's like, well, let's try giving these patients estrogens. Let's just dose them up with the so-called female hormone. Maybe that'll help. Nope does not help at all. It basically just causes them to prematurely grow breasts and causes all sorts of other side effects, but doesn't work. And it's not until um, this particular hormone um, cortisone is, or cortisol, you know, a, a synthetic version of cortisol synthesized during the war. You know, originally the U.S. Army is hoping to dose troops with it for various reasons. Um, but, you know, anyways, Wilkins is like, I wonder if this would have any effect because this new hormone, you know, that's neither an estrogen nor a testosterone had proven really dramatic in treating rheumatoid arthritis. And so he's like, let me just try it on patients with adrenal hyperplasia. And wouldn't you know it, it has this endocrine application. And so that the adrenal glands start shrinking and, you know, masculinization slows down, even partially reverses. And all of a sudden there is a hormonal mode of address. And so that doesn't mean that there's no longer plastic surgery being imposed on these patients. It simply means that, you know, Wilkins might, you know, put, might put you on a medication schedule with the synthetic hormone to sort of slow down, reverse, and put a pause on the overactive adrenal glands and then send you over to the Brady Urological Institute for plastic surgery on your genitals, which just to say again, there's no medically necessary reason to do plastic surgery on the genitals. So partly why this story is so important is, you know, that we see the grafting of an aesthetic concern for the sex binary onto other bodily processes that, you know, it's not to say that they're not sex, but it's just to say like, for example, the biggest anxiety for a lot of these parents and families and clinicians is the idea that a woman might have a large clitoris, right? A patient who identifies as a woman but has, you know, congenital adrenal hyperplasia. And even if you take the the new synthetic hormone, you'll have like a larger clitoris on average. Well, that's considered so abhorrent that it's fine to amputate this person's clitoris, right? And which is like brings up a whole host of, of ethical issues. It occurs to me that a twisted irony maybe here is that the sort of this sort of mainstream butchery actually performed on intersex children in in the name of medicine is what anti-trans activists and commentators fantasize with great horror is what's happening to cis youth, you know, being coerced into being trans by woke culture. And just to say, since we're turning the screw on them here for a moment, 
All of these bills banning gender-affirming care have explicit intersection clauses <laughs> to permit the continued practice of these surgeries that intersex people and activists have been organizing to end for decades. And, you know, that, I think, is the real scandal. Here. It's a real tell. It's a huge tell because it's not a hypocrisy. It's not an inconsistency. It's actually entirely continuous with this history because as early as the 1930s, really interestingly, at Hopkins, was around the time, you know, just looking through medical records in these clinics, it was in the 30s where I first started to see people showing up at the clinic where I'm like, oh, you're here claiming to be intersex. You're definitely trans. <laughs> and because people started to hear, hey, you know what, Johns Hopkins, they change people's sex, right? And so some trans people in the 1930s are like, ooh, I would like to change sex. That sounds great. I've read about the idea of sex change in popular science magazines, because of course, there are famous Europeans, Lily Elba, or people in the UK who might have been, you know, also intersex, but presented a sort of trans narrative of sex change, like Mark Weston, you know, so people start showing up at Hopkins and they're like, hey, I'm sure I'm intersex. Please, <laughs> would you indeed change my sex, right? And, uh, and they're asking for very, like, literally, like, you have a trans guy who I call Bernard in my book show up and be like, I want top surgery. And I'd like you to, you know, you know, give me a plastic surgery to have a fully functional penis. And he meets with you, Hugh Hampton Young. And Hugh Hampton Young is so charmed and convinced by him. At first, he says yes. <laughs> like, he's like, oh, okay, I guess this patient is intersex. I mean, okay. And then is like, well, I don't know. Uh, maybe you should just go talk to a psychiatrist. You know, just, just, just before I, you know, get the operating table ready. And the psychiatrist is like, Hugh, my dude, what are you talking about? This person is not intersex. This person is something is else. Is a homosexual. He's a homosexual is what the psychiatrist says. But really, the psychiatrist is like, I don't fucking know who this I don't understand this person's request at all. There's nothing, quote unquote, wrong with him. Why does he want to be made, you know, into a man? Um, and so it's really interesting. You know, this is why I tell the story of intersex and trans people together in my book, because they really did travel together. And as early as the 30s, we're starting to see this incredibly consequential divergence that, as you just alluded to, is not over, where the precisely the same kinds of medical techniques and procedures that are coercively and often non-consensually performed on intersex people in order to force them, force them to have a sex appearance that satisfies society. Those exact same techniques and procedures surgeries and medications when trans people ask for them because they want them because they want to change how their body uh, exists in the world are denied to them and that just that absolute absurdism is baked in so long ago you know it's almost a hundred years of it running now and um, but it just it never continues to upset me because i also have to say just as an aside I, I remain incredibly angry um, at the way that intersex people are used as like a debate point, you know, talking about the sex binary and also talking about trans issues. Like every, I'm so sorry to invoke Twitter, but every Twitter thread or whatever, right, is always like, well, what about intersex people? Then, you know, like pro-trans people have one version of saying intersex people validate trans people's existence and anti-trans people, you know, have all their weird ways of dismissing intersex people as, as inconsequential. And I'm like, these are real people who have arguably been the most harmed by the history of the medical model and are still actively being harmed, even as a prop to further entrench 
transphobia or actually vice versa, right? Bans on gender affirming care are re-entrenching medicalized abusive intersex people. And I just really wish we could have a, a much more complicated conversation, you know, and also that like, everyone who isn't intersex was like even a tiny bit accountable for the ways we just like do the things that doctors do too, where they're like, literally call intersex people. It's so disgusting. Natural experiments. Like, oh, you're a natural experiment. Nature's just experimenting with sex in you. And it's like, uh, no, that sounds like a confession of what you want to do to someone. You want to turn them into a natural experiment. I mean, it's just such a, it's just such a terrible, terrible, terrible history. In that history with trans people mobilizing their knowledge of intersex medicine to request medical support and then often being rejected and being you know the response being actually you're you're a homosexual how did this concept at the time because the terminology changes so much over the past century how did this concept of so-called sexual inversion which which encompassed both homosexuality and transvestism how did that shape these these encounters I love being able to really like dig in because I think part of what my book wants to do is just throw wrenches in like the starting point for any conversation. So if we've already thrown a wrench in the idea that sex and gender have always been understood as binary, this would be the other kind of big wrench, right? Which is that today we treat gay and lesbian people and trans people as if they are different species, right? We say, well, gay and lesbian people, that's just sexuality, and sexuality, this is like, if you go to like trans 101 or LGBT training 101, what are they going to tell you? They're going to say, sex, <laughs> your orientation. Is not, yeah, sex is not the same as gender and gender is not the same as sexuality. This is why I can't go to these trainings because I'm like, I'm sorry, I completely disagree with you. You're wrong. Um, I understand why people make those claims, but I think they're stupid. Um, they're medical <laughs> distinctions. So one really interesting thing, which again matters because there's also so much identity politics right now trying to play off gay and lesbian people against trans people, which is the fucking stupidest shit I've ever heard. Like, not even one second of history, right, will support you. One interesting thing to talk about is, you know, in the late 19th and well into the 20th century, the distinction is entirely unclear. It's unclear in psychiatry and sexology and medicine, right? But it's actually also unclear in the vernacular. And I would say that largely the science of medicine is reflecting the vernacular. Now, recall again that this is this era of, of natural bisexuality, right? So one of the ways people understand what we now think of as homosexuality or gay identity, right, is through the inversion of gender, because it's gendered appearance that signifies that difference. So, you know, in the late 19th century, what made someone gay, if you're a man, is not that you are attracted to other men. It's that you are an effeminate type of man who, you know, is sexually available to normal men. So, you know, sex is, sexuality is, is organized around gendered style, gendered position, and also sexual position, right? So men, quote unquote, regular masculine men who have sex with fairies or effeminate gay men, right? The person who is the top, right, is not gay. That's just absolutely not understood to be a kind of person. Because the action doesn't define the, the sexual practice doesn't define the identity automatically in that context. Exactly. Well, except for the feminized partner for whom it <laughs> right, does. Right, for the bottom. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And this is, of course, a very old kind of epistemology that you could trace back to antiquity if you really wanted to, uh, at least in the West. Now, now, what's so interesting, though, is this idea of inversion gets codified by sexologists. So the idea of inversion sounds very suspiciously similar to things we hear today. Okay, so inversion is like a gay man is, um, you know, 
a woman trapped in a man's body, like literally like a woman's brain inside a man's body or a woman's soul, right? Now, some of those quote unquote gay men are definitely trans women in the modern sense. But but what's sort of interesting to me is historically, even in the vernacular, in the working classes in particular, the distinction is just irrelevant, right? So I don't think people, there are some people, you know, say in 1895 in New York City who really look like trans women that kind of seem more like me. And there are some who just seem more like effeminate gay men. There, but but most kind of fall somewhere in the middle, and no one's invested in making that distinction. And right. so there's this kind of different tradition, right? Like part of what's so interesting, again, is that where we arrive by the 1950s, where there is this sense that you have to be a man or a woman, right? You can't be an intermediary type. That's a pretty substantial closing off after 50 years, actually more like 60 or 70 years, where you could be an intermediary type. People used to call themselves third sexers. That's how they called gay and lesbians and trans masculine and trans feminine people. They're like, yeah, you know, I kind of fall somewhere in between men and women, right? Even if they sort of live largely as men or women in their regular lives, they if you press them to explain themselves, they'd be like, sure, maybe I'm intersex. Maybe my soul or psyche is trapped in the wrong body, whatever, right? Uh, and this was actually a really common, I was actually probably the most prevalent way that LGBT people understood themselves until really the 1950s. And so there's this whole kind of culture, for example, of transvestism, which is one of my favorite words that gets so maligned because, you know, creepy dudes in psychiatry who clearly have their own sexual <laughs> hangups have so intensely sexualized transvestism as a fetish, right? Like the heterosexual crossdresser dude, like literally, like anyone who researches this and publishes in like archives of sexual behavior, I'm like, honey, I get it. You're a fetishist. It's okay. But don't make your whole career about that. Like just chill out. Don't harm people. But be a actually, professional, that's, please. Be a professional. <laughs> Hello. But speaking of, the person who coins the term transvestite, is a professional sexologist, is Magnus Hirschfeld, uh, is the German sexologist, well known for his Berlin Institute that was destroyed by the Nazi regime in, in the early 1930s. Now, you know, when he coins this term in German, transvestitin or whatever, you know, what he means is the kind of drive to dress, you know, differently than the clothing that is associated with the, you know, the sex you were assigned at birth. Uh, and that there is a kind of, you know, range of versions of this. But this is also his concept for trans people, because his clinic will be one of the first places in Europe um, where trans people get access to, to medical transition in the form of surgery. And so he understands transvestites not to just be some sort of like erotic compulsion to cross-dress, but actually an identity category. And partly the reason that he says that is because it just reflects reality. Weimar Berlin is like full of cafes and cabarets and bars full of people who live, right, as a gender at a time when there's no medical transition. So it really just means changing your clothing, changing your hair, putting on makeup, right, adopting a new name, and also changing your line of work, because what kind of work you're allowed to do is intensely conditioned on whether you're a man or a woman. So this vernacular culture of transvestites also grows up outside of science. Like in the U.S., from what I can tell, it's actually much more distant from, from sexology because like Americans, famously assholes, like are kind of frosty to German sexology. Like they don't like it. They don't like Freud either until the 50s or the 60s, right? So they're just kind of like... I don't know all this Hirschfeld weirdo transvestite <laughs> stuff, right? So like clinicians don't care about this. So transvestites in the US and there are, 
you know, documented histories of them forming friendship groups and sororities as far back as the 1930s, you know, they organized their relationship to gender around clothing. And that makes so much sense. It's not superficial. It was actually primordial in this time period. But this whole generation of people, right, I think one of the really interesting points that I always like to make is, you know, first of all, they're still around. There's still plenty of transvestites out there. They did not disappear. Um, But it means they were there before the medicalization of gender transition came about. Just practically, historically, they were there first. So one of the really interesting things that happens, for example, is that in 1952, when Christine Jorgensen, having gone to Denmark, this American soldier you know, undergoing gender confirmation surgery, comes back to New York, becomes a world-famous celebrity. The celebrity's transsexual, the former GI, become blonde bombshell, (laughs) right? She's this sort of, a lot of people start narrating trans history there because they're like, oh, okay, I see. Like, she took estrogen and got surgery. But there's literally tons and tons of transvestites in America already who've been living as women, some of them, for a long time and who are much older than her and who came of age well before World War II. And they're obsessed with her, but a lot of them are initially critical. They're like, I don't know. Like, you don't need surgery to be a woman. That's kind of weird. And so they don't trust her. And they also are kind of brilliantly prescient. They're like, I don't know. I don't trust doctors. Can you imagine the kind of penance they're going to exact, you know, in exchange for getting access to these hormone and surgery things? Like, I don't know. That just seems like a losing battle. And so it's like really interesting just to decenter also, again, dethrone the kind of little tyranny of medicine that has pretended it invented trans people or invented transition when it really didn't. And say, like, for example, transvestites have this long, rich history that I think we kind of oversell the idea that like the Nazis, because they destroyed Hirschfeld's Institute, somehow erased everything and somehow like the clock reset in 1945 or something. It's like, no, a lot of transvestites are just keep on living, right? So there are just these many, many, many multiple histories of the ways trans people have taken up gender and taken up the question of what transition is, right? And so for example, Once you get to the 60s and the 70s, transvestites are so anxious about transsexuals, the ones who medically transition, and are so worried that they're out of date and passe that in some of their newsletters, they're like, we're going to fall off the face of the earth. Like, we're going to be written out of history because we're so seen as so backwards. And like, sadly, in some ways, that I think is the popular perception. But I just, I love transvestism. I love transvestites. I'm, I'm writing about them in some of my current research. So always glad to get to give them a shout out. Shout out to all transvestites listening. Hey, we love ya. Hi, this is Olufemi Otaiwo, and you're listening to The Dig. You can support the podcast at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by N Plus One Magazine, which features some of the most exciting and stylish political writing, essays, fiction, and cultural criticism on the left today. One piece that might interest Dig listeners is Gabriel Winant's J.D. Vance Changes the Subject, published in the magazine's brand new spring issue. In the piece, Winant, a labor historian, organizer, and previous Dig guest, examines J.D. Vance in the psychoanalytic repression that underpins his political project. Through a close reading of Vance's career and especially his memoir, Hillbilly Elegy, Wynant argues that Vance is bent on an ethic of culpability, blaming and punishing the working class for the trauma of his own childhood. Looking to political figures like John Fetterman in Pennsylvania and Brandon Johnson in Chicago, Wynant asks, 
How can the left build solidarity out of the real crises of deindustrialization that Vance has weaponized? Dig listeners can take 25% off a year-long print subscription to N Plus One at nplusonemag.com slash the dig. Enter the dig, that's one word, the dig, at checkout to get three issues delivered in the mail, plus full access to 18 years of paywalled essays, reviews, and fiction, all for less than $3 a month. That's N-P-L-U-S-O-N-E-M-A-G dot com slash the dig. Let's turn to the invention of of gender, which in the 1950s, synthetic hormones are becoming really generally available. Transsexual medicine is taking shape as a practice, I think, distinct from intersex medicine. And all of this, and this really surprised me, it all leads to the production of gender as this new concept. You write, quote, Although gender has come to be associated with cultural malleability and feminist political projects, as far as its conditions for emergence are concerned, it is better described as a medical device mobilized to face the potential conceptual collapse of binary sex. The concept of gender was meant to save the sex binary from imminent collapse by offering a new developmental justification for coercive and normalizing medical intervention into intersex children's bodies. But before we get to that invention of gender, let's go right up to the precipice right before then. How how did intersex medicine lead to what you call a, quote, looming epistemological crisis over the sex binary? This is actually my takeaway from having reviewed, you know, about 70 years worth of both lab research science, evolutionary biology, endocrinology, embryology as a hard science, and then also that clinical history of intersex medicalization at Johns Hopkins, I was like, oh, I see why they had to invent gender. These people are so fucking stressed out because what has been the one thing they've wanted all along? Sure, all these pions to natural bisexuality notwithstanding, they want to find out what makes people male or female. That's the holy grail, right? You want to find out what makes people tick. And to their chagrin, The more they learn about sex, the more they realize nothing exerts a deterministic outcome on sex development. It is not, in fact, genetically preordained. And one of the reasons that it's not is because the endocrine system is not, you know, genetically ordered, right? Like, you know, the genotype doesn't like explain reliably what kind of hormones or even gonads you'll have reliably, right? And then it's like very alarming when they realize like everyone has quote unquote male and female hormones, like everyone has estrogen and testosterone. So whoops, it turns out those aren't like sex exclusive hormones, right? But then it comes, they get to this sort of really messy kind of taxonomic situation where they're like, what is sex? And you can read these biologists or doctors writing in the 1940s. I mean, you can just read in between the lines how stressed they are. They're like, okay, what makes up your sex? Okay, well, there is your genetics. Okay, there's your chromosomes, but they're just, they're just, you know, learning how to um, establish. Okay, then there are, you know, what they call the primary sexual characteristics. It's just a taxonomic distinction. Nature did not hand it down to us, right? But like, okay, your genitals, what they look like on the outside. Okay, there's your gonads, right? Um, you know, and then then there's your endocrine system. Then there are your secondary sexual characteristics, your height, your, you know, fat distribution, your breasts or chest, your hips, right? Um, your facial hair or lack thereof, your voice. And it's like, Oh my God, this list has gotten really long. (laughs) And the worst thing of all to these people, 
for creating a unified theory of sex is that none of them reliably relate to any of the others in a predictable format. They right? don't. So you, pre- they don't dependably correspond in some kind of causal fashion. Yeah, in fact, in none at all, right? So you can have (laughs) one genotype and one gonadotype of sex. You can have one endocrine sex that disagrees, you know, with your gonads. You can, you know, be otherwise male but grow breasts, you know, like, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Like the et cetera is getting very exhausted. And on, on top of all of that, right, clinically, I think this is where they're really feeling stressed, right? They're like, also, some people... Right, because they used to be like, well, intersex people. Of course, there's some biological explanation for why they're different. But then there are all these people that have no biological difference at all. Talking about trans people who are like, "Hello, I'm completely biologically male, but I am a woman, so I need to change my sex." And I know you can do that, so you better help me. This concept of sex is in crisis because it has no coherence. The more technical access to changing sex medicine and science had accrued, the only real empirical definition of sex left was that sex is change. Sex is quintessentially about change. For example, we could even re-narrate human development as sex change, right? Is your sex the same when you're a newborn baby as when you're 15 years old? No, absolutely not. Everything about your body changes dramatically. Is your sex the same at age 20 and age 70? No, right? We have these terms, puberty, menopause, right? To talk about these variations in sex within an individual over the lifespan. And so on the one hand, science and medicine needs sex to be very malleable and changeable, in other words, plastic, in order to intervene into it at all, medically and scientifically. So they want that. But on the other hand, it creates this epistemological crisis. It suggests there is no sex binary. We could have ended up with a kind of rubric that said like, Again, it could have been a a kind of modification of natural bisexuality, but at the very least, we could have simply said, there's nothing particularly natural about male or female, and certainly nothing that today we might call cisgender, right? But like, these are conservative people, right? They're not trying to bring about the end of sex. On the contrary, right? I actually think the dilemma is that clinically, they need sex to be plastic, but uh, discursively, politically, ideologically, they want to use that plasticity for a contrary purpose, to force people to be normal. And this is where the concept of gender comes in. Why then was the invention of gender a provisional solution to all this? And in particular, to what extent was providing such a solution to that quote-unquote problem. To what extent was that Hopkins psychologist John Money's motivation in inventing the concept? And to what extent was it more a highly functional effect of the concept's invention? I love the way that you put that, because that's exactly the way I would want to frame it. You know, let's, let's first think about just, you know, how do we get from sex to gender, right? So part of the problem is that the way particularly sex, sexual abnormality had been framed since the 19th <laughs> century was on the presumption that there was an etiology to it. That in fact, there was a disease, a disorder, or an etiological error in your sex that had to be corrected. In other words, there was a defect in your body. But after compiling that complicated definition of sex and meeting trans people, everyone has to admit that doesn't actually exist. So there's no, what's the medical justification now for saying you have to look like this ideal type of a man and a woman? There isn't one. There's no medical justification anymore. 
And so gender comes in to produce a sociological at first, but it gets recoded as psychological imperative. And so it's ingenious here, but it's not actually, I'm going to say something silly. It's ingenious <laughs> tactically. It's incredibly stupid as an idea. And it's absolutely, and so so one thing that, you know, readers of my book will note, I mean, John Money casts a long shadow. This guy rightfully is not remembered very well. He's He's not a great guy. Like, I'm not a fan. But I, I actually really dislike the way that he is sort of, you know, by both his critics and his hagiographers sort of, you know, reinforced as somehow an incredibly historically significant guy that had some sort of brilliant idea when he invented gender. And I agree rather with the cohort of of scholars that see him just sort of as reflecting broader shifts in the relationship between the hard sciences, the social sciences, and medicine. So that's why I'm going to say, I think what money does is just fulfill on a kind of shift away from that older biological paradigm of sex because it just burnt out. There was nothing to it, yeah. right? And a move towards a, a sociological uh, and a psychologized sociological imperative. So Here's how this plays out, and then I'll I'll thread it back to this question about um, about the New Deal and about sort of what's going on in America that helps us understand all of this, right? So here's Money's Gambit, and and just to say, Money's actually working with a team of other people who are basically uh, psychologists who advise the practicing endocrinologists at Hopkins. So that Lawson Wilkins guy I mentioned earlier, right, who has been doing different hormonal interventions working with the surgeons at the Brady Institute, they're the ones that hire John Money out of grad school. And he gets to work on this team with um, a husband and wife psychologist pair, Joan and John Hampson. And in a series of papers in 1955, they elaborate the concept of gender for the first time in the English language as this kind of medical concept, more or less. And basically what they do is they have this, this is the part that's ingenious. They say, okay, we have no way to tell someone if you don't look male or female, right, or if your sense of yourself disagrees with your anatomy, we have no medical or scientific way to beat you into submission because we cannot explain what makes you male or female. We cannot reliably force you into a body, right? Like we just have nothing kind of going for us. So we're going to change the dilemma altogether. No longer will it matter for us to be able to prove what really makes someone male or female or a man or a woman. Instead, we will simply take the social imperative to be normal and say that if you live out of step with the rest of society, either because you're intersex, because your body does not appear outwardly to others to conform to male or female or to the binary, or if you fall out of step with society because you're trans, right, and your sense of yourself disagrees with how other people read your body, that constitutes a lack of adjustment. And adjustment is a really important concept, both kind of in the social sciences and anthropology, sociology, you know, of the mid-century. And it's increasingly being adopted by psychologists. That psychologist's sort of role is to help the individual adjust to society. And the individual's conformity to social norms is actually a kind of primary index of healthiness in this time period. That's just the sort of broader literature. And so really all money and the Hampsons are doing is borrowing this uh, notion from anthropology and sociology through psychology and applying it in a clinical setting. And so they'll simply say, right, 
I don't know what makes you the way you are, made your body the way it is. But I'll tell you this, if you don't grow up and, you know, <laughs> you know, get get yourself into shape as a man or a woman, you're not going to be able to succeed in this world, right? And so it's actually just a pathologization of social difference. And so gender arrives to say, like, gender is simply the psychological component of sex. It's just a name for, and they literally call it gender role at first. It's this very sociological idea that we all play roles, men and women are roles. But they simply concede that people's sense of their internal self doesn't correspond inexorably to the body they have. And so if it doesn't, then the role of medicine is to force an agreement through whatever means necessary, your sense of your gender, your sense of yourself must match your physical body as it reads to other people. Not because there's a medical or scientific rationale behind that, merely because that is the social norm. This is all... And you got to choose one. And you have to choose one. And you also have to choose one as early as possible in life, right? And so this is where we start to get the panic around kids. It's actually formed to some extent in this era, right? And money doesn't have proof, Right? We talk about gender today, gender identity, right? which is not really the concept that money invented. But in any case, the one that's kind of become most popular, I think people generally buy the idea that, well, you know, your gender is formed very early in life, right? Yeah, you might be a theological creationist, but but let's say the sort of, you know, idea is like, yeah, you, your gender, you know, you know, you're a boy or a girl by young age, right? Well, is there any actual <laughs> scientific proof of that? No, it's actually an analogy at first. Money just analogizes this to your first language, right? That we're sort of born with the capacity to learn a language, but we're not born able to speak. And actually, we can be taught any language, right? But whatever language you learn first at a young age is basically the one you'll speak best. And any language you learn later in life as an adult, you'll always sort of fumble and have an accent. And so he says gender must be acquired in the similar way. There might be a biological capacity to your sense of yourself as a man or a woman, but it's actually cultural input during developmentally sensitive period that, you know, creates that. But that's just an analogy. He has no evidence for this and he never arrives at any. And so and so basically what that means though is that it's this really smart way to put it because it creates this developmental teeth to this theory of gender, that there's actually a waning window. We have to settle someone's gender and make sure it matches their body as early in life because the longer you wait, the harder it is to do. And definitely before puberty. Definitely before puberty, right? Now, of course, that might have some sociological truth to it descriptively in 1950s America, but it's also just a really great way to produce a stick to, you know, basically hit people with in the clinic, be like, you're running out of time to have a gender. We got to do this, right? Or to convince parents. Actually, largely, if you go back and read these articles and his advice to clinicians is all about how um, doctors should, you know, calm the anxieties of parents who are like, excuse me, you want to do what to my kid? You want to ch- operate on their genitals and change their gender and their name? What are you talking about? What, are you some sort of creep, right? And so they're trying to create this like developmental imperative. Um, and so basically, gender arises in this moment as a project, right, for epistemologically saving the sex binary by saying, we'll just stop asking what makes people men or women, because we don't know the answer. We give up, right? We don't care what makes you a man or a woman. Now, we just want to make sure you are a man or a woman. And a man or a woman from now on will mean very specifically that your sense of yourself, your psyche, your psychology, your interiority must match your physical body. And that 
in some ways, I will argue, is the origin of the notion of cisgender, right? Cisgender means on the same side as cis, right? So unlike trans, which suggests crossing or moving away from what was assigned at birth, cis means staying on the same side as what you're assigned at birth, right? But actually the idea of, of what those two things are that have to be on the same side, I actually think are psyche and physical body, right? And so the sex-gender distinction actually comes from this totally disgusting normalizing project. It's not invented by feminists, and feminists somewhat adapt it, but they actually borrow it from money and, and the psychiatrist Robert Stoller and other people. In particular, I'm, I'm wondering whether the political economy of, of the New Deal order also plays a role here. With the, this expansion of modern the modern medical and insurance system in the mid-20th century, expanded access to health care, creating this mass class of insured patients who, whose problems it was the job of medical professionals like John Money to respond to. Where do you break out the sort of like cause and effect of the invention of gender? You know, it's it's interesting to reflect on why this happened then, right? You know, part of it is, of course, the, the kind of apex of medical and scientific authority, but a, a huge expansion of the welfare state since the New Deal actually just bringing many, many, many more people into contact with institutional medicine than had ever been in contact before, right? Like, including to something as basic as like more and more children being born in hospitals, which involves that moment, right, when the attending doctor looks at the genitals of the baby to decide its sex, because this is the pre-ultrasound era. That's just leading to many, many, many more children um, being identified as intersex and being medicalized in the first place, right? But there's also just this broader, very 1950s idea of the duty of the American individual is to conform to society, and that's part of just Cold War gender politics, the incredible, incredible, difficult project of trying to force women out of the workplace back into the home, white women at least, right, to give up the sort of autonomy, economic and otherwise, they had acquired working during the war. It also has to do with, you know, moral panics around homosexuality and communism that are running rampant, the lavender scare, chasing the red scare. I mean, there's just this incredible new emphasis on gender in American society in the 1950s, but gender in the sense of social role. That, you know, what it means, it's not good enough to just be a man or a woman. You have to be the right kind of man or a woman. And that sort of, you know, ideal type in some ways is narrowing, particularly in its white middle class register. And so John Money and, and co, you know, and people as they start adopting this model, absolutely see, you know, the role, the social role of the physician, right, to make people as normal as possible and to force them, to force them to adjust to society because that was truly seen as the highest measure of psychologically healthy development. And so it's no wonder that this is starting from childhood because we're also getting into that kind of 1950s era where more and more anxiety about like, oh, is little Jimmy, what if little Jimmy wants to play with Barbie? Uh-oh, <laughs> right? So like all of this is kind of going on, right? There's the narrow kind of, you know, clinical history, scientific history version of it. But I think also it just very clearly reflects the kind of question of how American culture's 
new global hegemony will self-reproduce? What will be the social reproduction of American family, the nuclear family, this, you know, in this sort of strange blip post-war where, you know, wealth is being sort of transferred, you know, to white people in a particular way. How are we going to hold all of this together? Well, one of the ways is going to be by making sure, you know, that everyone is the right kind of man or woman, uh, grows up the right way and is adjusted to society in order to be productive members thereof. John Hopkins opens its gender identity clinic in 1966, which is a signal moment for this new field of transsexual medicine and of transsexuality as a category distinct from transvestism and homosexuality. But but even before that, in 1962, UCLA opens, the UCLA Department of Psychiatry opens its gender identity research clinic. You write, quote, UCLA became a home to work that was both hostile to and suspicious of trans children, while ironically going much further with hormone treatment and transition for children than the ostensibly welcoming clinics on the East Coast. That's referring to Hopkins and to, um, I believe, Harry Benjamin's New York private practice. This is a fascinating part of your book. First, how did UCLA's psychoanalytic approach compare in terms of theory and practice compared to what was going on at Hopkins? And then why this ironic turn of events that UCLA's more overtly transphobic theoretical framework leads to more concrete support for hormonal treatment for trans teens. Yeah, it's so bizarre. But it's actually really, it's really revelatory to me. It was one of the most interesting, chewy problems I was working out um, while, while I was writing this book. You know, because we're more familiar with this transsexual medical model. That's the Christine Jorgensen thing, right? That's the gender clinic at Hopkins being the very first of these, where you have to fit these really Byzantine Baroque diagnostic criteria. And there's this rigid gatekeeping system to basically stop most people from ever getting access to care. And so one of the hilarious it's not funny, but one of the interesting data points at the Johns Hopkins Gender Clinic, the most famous one, the first one that is, you know, shut down in 1979, is like almost no one ever gets access to surgery through that clinic. It's like literally like less than 200 people, right? You know, and like truly there were tens of thousands of people who would have liked to have gone there, right? And they're all getting rejected um, because that clinical setup is just designed to disqualify 99 point something percent of all prospective patients. And it very successfully does so. It's just that conservative, right? Now, what was going on at UCLA is different in a number of ways that you were just alluding to. So this is a very interdisciplinary kind of clinical space. It was literally kind of like a hallway where you have like, hey, there's some sociologists in this hallway, some psychologists, some practicing clinicians, and they just started to get together in this very, very California 1960s kind of way being like, let's just pool our resources and bring interesting patients to present to each other and kind of like, you know, kind of jam out and think about what we're doing with them. But this clinic, you know, is designed to, you know, research questions of of gender, but it was never designed to be a medical transition clinic. And so from the very beginning, one thing that's super clear is that at UCLA, no one is ever going to help you get access to surgery. And actually by removing that potential endpoint, 
in some ways it relaxed, you know, kind of the attitudes of clinicians and allowed for just a lot more kinds of patients to show up there. So there are like gay people, intersex people, trans people showing up at this clinic and a lot of kids, like quite a lot of kids. And part of that is because it's a very psychotherapy, psychoanalysis oriented clinic. And those kinds of people are, you know, by their nature, the nature of their discipline, very interested in childhood, right? And so what happens, right, is that basically at UCLA, you have this kind of cohort of clinicians who are like, well, what if we do kind of figure out what makes people trans? This very thing that otherwise is sort of being given up on because it just seems impossible. But for people trained, you know, ostensibly in a Freudian psychoanalytic idiom, there is some sort of sense that like cross-gender identification is normative, you know, through infantile and developmental stages. And so, you know, someone like someone like Dr. Robert Stoller, who is both a practicing psychiatrist, but also a psychoanalyst, had a kind of disciplinary epistemological disposition to imagine that, well, you know, maybe a trans girl just got stuck identifying with her mother at a certain age or something like that. And so basically what this means in practice is that this clinic at UCLA is very willing to see people and kind of see them for a long time because they're not really offering them anything in return. And so, of course, the reason that any children are really there is because their parents drag them in. Either their parents are very anxious, you know, like I read case notes, you know, you've got parents in intake interviews being like, we'll go back to proverbial Jimmy. Jimmy cries a lot and I'm worried he might be gay, right? Basically, like Jimmy's acting too feminine and I'm scared for Jimmy, <laughs> He's a right? little sensitive. <laughs> a little too sensitive. And the clinician is like, cool, like I'll hang out with Jimmy. And basically what ends up happening, and this is really pivotal to me, because I actually think this is scandalously, scandalously underappreciated in the history of trans medicine. Practicing forms of conversion therapy was standard operating procedure, frankly, sometimes still is. That is to say, if you are meeting someone for the first time who might be trans, especially if they're a kid, which is to say still quote-unquote developing, if they haven't totally reached their mature sense of self, clinicians saw it as their duty to try and try as best they could through aggressive psychotherapy to force kids out of their trans identities. There's still time because the child is still plastic. It's not, puberty has not set everything in, into stone. Exactly. So you can see how they're in conversation with this sort of John Money approach to this, but they have a, a kind of different sense of intervention and a different sense of technical intervention because of, of psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. And so basically what this means is that this clinic will spend a lot of time. It'll keep kids coming in for years trying to force them to give up their gendered behavior. Now, this is psychotherapeutic intervention every bit as stupid, I think, as listeners might be imagining. It could be as dumb as taking a child that everyone wants to be a boy and being like, I'm going to have you sit in this chair, but every time you cross your legs, you know, I don't know, I'm going to make a loud noise or yell at you or something until you learn to sit with your, you know, until you learn to manspread, to use the contemporary vernacular, because that's what being a man is, right? Um, so it's like, it's not great therapy. It's really mean. It's really contemptuous. And actually, some of the people you know, who kind of come out of this UCLA milieu will go on to practice the most explicit and often Christian anti-gay and anti-trans conversion therapy that does evolve, involve a lot of physical abuse and psychological abuse and even sexual abuse. But, you know, what's going on at UCLA is basically they're like, we're not here to help you transition at all, right? We're just here to investigate you and try and figure out what makes you tick and try and stop you from being trans. Now, of 
course, they fail at that goal every single time. Gloriously, you cannot stop people from, you know, from being trans. You can police their behavior, but even these indefatigable, cold-hearted psychiatrists have to admit it doesn't work well. So fascinatingly, in this milieu that says we don't really like what's going on on the East Coast. I don't like this Harry Benjamin John money giving people access to medical transition. We should try and stop them from being trans. Well, they kind of have this practical concession that by the time these trans kids are hitting 14, 15, they've been trying for years to, to aggressively kind of, you know, psychiatrize or psychotherapeutize them out of being trans and they failed. Some of these, like, clinicians, you know, formed multi-year attachments to these kids start going, ah, fuck, fine, whatever. You're clearly very trans. It's, <laughs> and too, so it's too late. I did my, be- I did my best, but... <laughs> I must have failed. Whatever they want to say. Basically, they're like, okay, fine. And so amazingly enough, there's like a whole cohort of trans teenagers who get access to hormones. And at this point, the psychiatrist will start helping them transition, right? So they'll coordinate with their family, explain... You know, we really tried, but it turns out your kid's really a girl, so we got to give her the estrogen. And they'll help her, like, change her name, you know, know, get new clothes, move to a new school, start over fresh where no one knows her history. And then actually, you know, some of those kids will go on to get surgery once they hit 18 or 21. And so very interestingly, right, it turns out that the kind of most transphobic on paper kind of clinic ends up helping the most kids in part because... The other clinics are just not helping many trans people, period. Um, but, the, but to me, the main kind of takeaway beyond the irony is actually understanding that this attempt to eradicate transness is built into standard clinical procedure with children and teenagers. And that does not disappear probably, I mean, it's not completely gone now, but that doesn't even disappear as normative medical practice. I'm, I'm not exaggerate till the 2010s at least at least and so this is what like makes me want to rip my hair out <laughs> when i hear people say we need more therapy for kids for kids who are questioning their gender because one okay fine let me be generous for one second i think the general public probably imagines when like a 14 year old goes and sits down with the therapist, that the therapist is going to somehow evaluate them and administer legitimate psychological testing to figure out their gender. Yeah, they're not. (laughs) They're still doing the like, hey, do you play with this toy or that toy? Or they're doing very creepy things by saying like, hello, teenage child. How do you masturbate? And what do you fantasize about while you're masturbating? So they'll sexualize these kids. They'll invade their privacy. They'll harass them, right? Basically still practicing, you know, light to medium forms of conversion therapy, and you're just supposed to survive those to prove that you deserve to be able to medically transition. That has been standard operating procedure. And so when people are like, we need more, you know, basically psychotherapeutic intervention, I'm like, go look at what it is. None of this is hiding. We already tried this for decades. And even the meanest versions of this, right, all the way back in the 60s, even those psychiatrists gave up on it after a time. And so also the idea that like gay and lesbian children are being pressured into transition and that that's a kind of conversion therapy, 
couldn't be more of an inversion of reality. What this history actually shows us, because you can see this at UCLA too, is that a lot of trans kids were pressured into being gay and lesbian instead. That absolutely was seen as a better outcome. So trans girls would be told, why can't you just live as a gay man? Well, here, we'll help you do it. Um, and trans masculine people told, why can't you just be a masculine lesbian? We'll, we'll do anything to stop you from transitioning. So actually, again, this kind of history at UCLA, I think is so important, sometimes almost more important than what happened at Johns Hopkins, because it completely reframes, you know, how long certain practices have been ongoing, but also completely defangs some of the most common talking points about trans youth today. And it's just a reminder, like, if you don't let kids transition, and you want to put them through more hoops, those are the hoops, okay? So we want to talk about hurting kids, right? Um, and just forcing kids to wait for things is harm enough. But look, when you actually look at how brutal these psychotherapeutic interventions are, and how little they've improved in 70 years, I mean, I think it would make most people's blood like run cold. By the 70s, transsexual medicine had reached a new scale, with you have academic hospitals and private clinics making transition and gender confirmation surgery more widely available than ever before. Then in 1980, there's a new edition of the DSM, which for the first time includes an entry on gender identity disorder. And that gives trans medicine access, however tenuous, to, to insurance coverage. Not long before that, in 1973, homosexuality was declassified as a psychiatric disorder by the American Psychological Association. What should we make of this historical coincidence of the path to legitimate gay existence seemingly being paved by homosexuality being depathologized, while trans identity was in a sense legitimated through its pathologization? What do you see to be the relationship between these two moves and how, and how is that relationship typically interpreted in the scholarship? I mean, it was long interpreted as a progress narrative, <laughs> and it leads to all these weird contortions. We still hear this all the time, like as if trans people are the successors to gay and lesbian, right? Whether that's like gay and lesbian rights came first, and then it was trans rights, or people are like, it used to be all that gay, and now it's all this trans, and now the gay kids are going to become trans. Um, and, and, you know, remember back to earlier in our conversation when I was opining on how the difference between trans people and gay and lesbian people was meaningless until well into the 20th century. Actually, this moment of depathologization in 1973 is a critical moment of building that difference in, and it's built in in a transphobic way. I might give a short prehistory to what went down in 1973, actually through Stonewall, because after, you know, famously, as we now finally know, it took decades for people to admit this, the Stonewall Rebellion was largely led by gender nonconforming and trans people. It was the people who had the least to lose. It was the street queens. It was Silvia Rivera, right? It was these people um, who then were summarily kicked out of the ensuing gay liberation movement. Because another thing that happened in 1973 is Silvia Rivera had to fight her way on stage at Pride in New York City because no one wanted to hear from her anymore. There was this angry contingent of anti-trans gays and lesbians who were like, you're trashy. You're unrespectable. We don't want to be associated with you because if we're going to be, you know, make it as a political constituency in America, hey, what if we like 
made it as normal men and women. That's this new calling of gay politics as, you know, non-pathological, as gender normative. And that is something that started culturally and politically that then gets reflected in 1973 in the declassification of homosexuality. It's, it's removal from the DSM, which is led by the same kinds of gay activists who are like, we're not sick, there's nothing wrong with us. But those people actually are increasingly going to argue, oh no, we're not sick. You know who's really sick? Those trans people, right? And actually the medical community is like, oh, thank God, because we didn't want to give up, you know, prosecuting people's genders and sexualities. And so the removal of homosexuality from the DSM is tied directly, directly, both politically and conceptually and professionally to the introduction in 1980, which was the next edition of the DSM, of gender identity disorder, including gender identity disorder in childhood, which is both um, a diagnosis that affects trans kids particularly. It's the first time there's a child-specific diagnosis uh, you know, to be had. But that diagnosis is also used to essentially continue to practice conversion therapy on gay and lesbian kids by diagnosing their gender behavior as inappropriate. And so this is the era of sissy boy therapy and all this nonsense that really ruined a lot of people's lives. And so to me, this is a really cautionary moment. I actually think it's kind of tragic. You know, the the solidarities, you know, between gay, lesbian, and trans people had always been kind of shot through by class, particularly respectability around jobs, you know, closeting, you know, who does sex work, who has an office job, and so on. But it really sets us on this difficult path of estrangement where gay and lesbian interests are being separated from trans interests and vice versa, even though it makes no sense. Because like, as I'm always want to point out, (laughs) you know, all the data reminds us that like most trans people are also gay and lesbian. So I just like don't understand what this fantasy wedge that's being driven is even about, right? But in any case, um, this kind of kicking the can of pathologization down the road is in many ways a political betrayal of trans people, literally, the people who, you know, brought gay liberation into existence. And then, right, this idea that gay and lesbians will secure um, their healthiness by pathologizing the real sickos. And I have to say that that process has continued in many ways. There are long fights to depathologize you know, being trans and techni- technically um, being trans is no longer a mental illness, although I think it's a sort of flimsy attempt to to tie a bow on the status quo. Uh, but in any case, you know, even some trans people fighting for the depathologization have repathologized, for example, you know, people with autism. And there's a really interesting through line, we could, you know, just to pull UCLA back in the frame for a second, where that proverbial hallway where we had all these clinicians working with each other, right, the ones who are practicing anti-gay and anti-trans conversion therapy on these young people in the 60s are also talking to the clinicians that invent um, the essentially conversion therapy program, the behavioral therapy program designed to forcibly entrain children with autism and make them appear socially normal, this kind of really awful, highly, highly criticized, you know, kind of behavioral therapy program that continues to get insurance reimbursement and that is incredibly damaging uh, and incredibly ableist, all those people are working together. And so if we go back and say in the 60s, like the harm of pathologization encompasses gay kids, trans kids, 
and autistic kids, what we're going to start to see in the 70s is a breaking off of that potential coalition or solidarity point. First, it's going to be the gay people saying, we're not sick, it's just the trans people. And then the trans people, I mean, we're still stuck in the grip of pathology, but there is this sort of respectability imperative to premise one group's depathologization on the entrenched repathologization of the true sickos. And I just find that such a reprehensible act, period, and such a profound lost opportunity. Such a profound lost opportunity. Because part of what will happen, you know, at the end of the 70s is, you know, trans liberation is not fighting for institutional health care. Trans liberation doesn't want gender-affirming care. Trans liberation wants radical bodily autonomy. They want free hormones and surgery on demand without any gatekeeping, and they want a, a responsibility and accountability to be community-led. And part of what happens is when, you know, gay activists abandon trans people and leave them completely alone and say, we got ours, we don't want to be associated with you anymore, we're going to pretend we never knew you, even though we used to be the same people. <laughs> um, part of what's going to happen is that we hit 1980 and not only does the DSM come in and, and you know newly pathologize trans people but also some TERFs who are getting going in the 1970s they're also an offshoot of this decade right some TERFs will work to shut down the very limited movement toward insurance coverage and certainly public insurance coverage like Medicare Medicaid coverage of transition and lead to some federal regulations you know in the early 1980s that are one of the reasons why it then takes multiple more decades for trans people to get any medically you know any medical care covered by public or private insurance and it's that delayed process that then means it only just happened and now is being banned. So it's just like, you know, the seeds sown in the 70s of a respectable gender normative and trans exclusionary gay and lesbian politics, I think, you know, just to come full circle to our conversation are also one of the reasons, I mean, those activists were stupid. They they had they had a really dumb idea of success because they just wanted to assimilate and kind of live middle-class bourgeois respectable lives. These are people who just happen to be gay and lesbian. These are people who, you know, probably will be early champions for gay marriage, right? Now, one of their one of the reasons I think they were stupid is not just because they sold out trans people. It didn't work. What did they get for this? Did homophobia disappear? No. Like, literally, there's so much homophobia driving U.S. politics and institutions today to the point where all of these precious little bourgeois legal rights that they won, you know, from the the movements that, you know, were born of the 70s are now still 100% in danger. And it also turns out the people who are the most rabid homophobes still can't tell the difference between gay people and trans people because they have no need to. It serves their interest to conflate them, right? And so it's like, congratulations, trans transphobic gays and lesbians, you manifestly failed to even get yours and hold on to it. And so we lost, I think, a real opportunity for a profound kind of coalition across a number of social differences, class positions, right? It could have been a gay liberation movement in the way it was sort of birthed in 1969, 1970 as a radical movement that was intersectional, that could have comprehended not just, you know, police and incarceral abolition, not just depathologization, not just a radical critique of capitalism, but also a radical disability politics. I mean, so many of the, the ways people have been sold out since then have simply re-engendered 
or frankly, maintain the vulnerabilities that are now kind of the site of so many political dumpster fires that we're living through. So pardon my, you know, grandstanding, but it just pisses me off because I feel like we're stuck in a gravity well that like kind of erupted between 1970 and 1973. And as a historian, I'm sort of like, I don't think we ever left that gravity well, but people talk about it as if things have fundamentally changed. And I'm just not sure they have. I want to step back to discuss your book's big picture argument. Namely, you you refute the notion that medicine invented the trans child or trans people. But how do you theorize the relationship between between these changing forms of trans identity on the one hand and transformations within the medical establishment on the other? To what to what extent are they separate stories that that intersect and to what degree are they mutually constitutive constructed through some sort of dialectical or or dialogic relationship to each other? That's a really interesting question. I mean, you know, it's sort of clear in the structure of the book that medicine didn't invent, you know, trans kids because, you know, I narrate a couple of trans childhoods well before the medical model where kids are living obviously trans childhoods, you know, as far back as, you know, say 1930 or something, but there are many examples even before that. Some really fascinating examples, including one that really comes to mind is this one trans boy whose dad is like, no, you're not going to make him into the girl you think he is because uh, we already have a lot of daughters and I need him to work on the farm. (laughs) Right. But it makes sense because gender, you know, before it was heavily medicalized, just largely a category of division of labor (laughs) under, you know, the, the, the difficult shift from a household economy to an industrial wage labor economy. Right. So, yeah, there's this one trans boy from a rural environment who's like, you know, his family's kind of like, okay, well, I guess he's a boy, whatever. And so at some point he ends up in front of the doctor and the doctor's like, this is not a boy, it's a girl. <laughs> you know, and the doctor, yeah, and the dad is just like, the fuck I care, he's hardworking, I need the help on the farm. We got enough, we got enough girls, goodbye, right? And it's just like a reminder that before the arrival of this kind of scientific and medical hegemony, people had a million different vernacular ways to make sense of the trans people in their midst, including let's just say, loving and taking care of them, for fuck's sake, right? It's like, didn't see that guy having a total moral panic, right, over, or, you know, he he wasn't going to, his his wife wasn't going to log into mom's net and talk about how, you know, she's just, she's just so worried about, you know, my daughter's future breasts and who will ever love those breasts, you know, all these weird shit, like psychodramas that contemporary parents are invited into by the medical psychological rendering of transness. But in other words, you know, I guess I would say a couple of things. Transmedicalization is not the way it had to happen, right? And so part of what I want to say is like the medical regime that we get actually wasn't even designed, right, particularly for trans people. It's sex and gender are medicalized for everyone. So this is actually, unfortunately, a set of historical events that implicate all of us. It's just that trans people like intersex people maybe got the worst deal, and were also utilized as the kind of living laboratories, often against their will, or in impossible situations where they couldn't but consent to things they desperately wanted to get access to, right? And it just causes a lot of harm. And so, yeah, I think there's, it's interesting, there are, you know, I, I struggle with different kinds of motifs for how to narrate the relationships amongst these different competing visions, or horizons for trans life. Yeah, dialectical, definitely, you know, dialogic, certainly, just 
antagonistic often, um, you know, complementary in their antagonism. I mean, I think one thing we might say, or I often think that like, the arrival of medical transition is just like, you know, a threshold that is crossed that you can never go back to. And so for trans people who came of age or came into their understandings of themselves before there was such a thing as medical transition, yeah, a lot of them were like, whatever, I don't care. But for those of us, you know, who've come into the world and come into ourselves in an era where there is medical transition, it just simply makes sense, right? Like phenomenologically, I I am one of those people that's like, look, I was born in a time and place where medical transition exists. And so without it, like I would be dead. I would absolutely be dead. And so I will happily say that like, for me, it's transition or death. And I will defend it to my death if I have to. I'm never ever going to be forced to detransition. You know, I don't care what the law says. But you know, that's not like some sort of ontological truth about being trans. And I think, again, it's just, it's all just because it's historically contingent doesn't make it somehow less real, right? Understanding that there's a genealogy to the dilemma of this way of life, on the one hand, doesn't mean that this way of life that now includes the possibility of medical transition is somehow a mirage or, you know, unreal. But I think maybe the one insight that it does yield is that this this history wasn't inevitable. You know, the synthesizing of hormone compounds and the development of plastic surgeries did not inexorably have to lead to a medical gatekeeping model of transsexuality. It could have gone many, many different ways. And any of these inflection points that we've been discussing, you know, over the course of this conversation could have worked out differently, right? Just to say again, gay and lesbians could have chosen not to split themselves off from trans people to do politics. And depathologization for gay people could have included a very complicated form of deinstitutionalization of the resources of transition. You know, I often like to think about what an alternative to this deadly status quo of gender-affirming care, which is just absolute crap. And so when I'm fighting against anti-trans legislation, I'm not fighting for the status quo of medicine. I would much prefer a model where you didn't really have to necessarily go through institutional medicine at all to transition. Hormones are not very complicated as medications to take. They're incredibly easy to track. You need about one blood test a year for the first few years, then you're frankly good. So like most people can just do hormones on their own. Actually, most people do. Uh, Most people don't go to the doctor for them. There's no need to medicalize that in any, you know, random way. It, It impacts your relationship with your primary care physician. So great, but like, great, you know, and like surgeries are a little bit harder. We need access to them. They need to be free. They need to be available on demand. You know, there are all these sorts of rubrics that, that to me remain sort of like you know, the materialist takeaways from this history. So to me, you know, understanding the primacy uh, of the history of medicine in regulating trans people's lives just generates insight into how immiserating that history is, but also how incomplete it is. Like I said, again, most trans people were not directly involved in the history that we've been talking about today. Most transitioned without any of this stuff that we just discussed. So how do we shift our perspective to accommodate that empirical fact? And what do we take away from it for trying to understand how this history, among other things, constructs the present world that we live in, and also to see some of these dialectical struggles or antagonisms and the political struggles they've generated as still very much alive in the present, in some ways, 
more inflamed in this moment of anti-trans attack. I think that to me is sort of the lesson of the past 100 years is just not how surprisingly fragile sex and gender really are, because I think that's also a huge takeaway. They're just these flimsy taxonomic ideas that but for this sort of inner cop of every single doctor, psychologist, and social scientist we may not have had to deal with. But like, we're all sort of implicated in this terrible system that has replaced all, you know, is trying to replace all other ways of being in the world. And so, you know, the resistance points and contradictions and antagonisms of those most affected by them might also be the most uh, galvanizing, clarifying you know, perspectives on how to make the world less oppressive through sex and gender as sort of racial projects of statecraft and governmentality. Along those lines, just to drill down a little more, trans activists obviously talk about the need for trans medical care to be easily, universally accessible to everyone who wants it. But but they also talk about the need to demedicalize the existing framework for thinking about trans care, which could mean demedicalizing things like like taking hormones, but it, it also, I think, can mean thinking about trans identity in a way that can be valid beyond the medical model in the way that it was at the beginning of the story you're telling. Are these things in intention? What does it mean to demand care while also calling for for demedicalization? I think they play out intention at mo- at present, but I don't think they need to be intention. And and so figuring out a way to dedramatize the tension would be immensely helpful. Well, I'll say this, the liberal project of trans inclusion, which is a sort of institutional project, sometimes state sponsored, uh, also corporate sponsored, definitely, you know, I'm a professor, so I'm in a kind of institutional setting that, you know, does this kind of branded DEI version of trans inclusion, you know, that that one has sort of kind of proffered and adopted this weird slogan that like, it's valid to be trans and not medically transition. It's like, yeah, 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 totally cool. From my perspective, that's like fine, of course, but like it's it's actually like easiest to not do something. So it's still more pressing to me, like for trans people who do want to transition, the great scandal of the world we live in is that very few ever get to. And the ones who do are so terribly mistreated um, and, you know, are often subject to just horrifying version of a medical narrative of that kind of transition journey that I would like to see that radically changed, which is to say, I would like to see the means of transition, the sort of, let's say, you know, the kind of modes of gendered social reproduction or self-production, you know, to be liberated from their institutional homes and to be, you know, distributed as potentials, you know, throughout the population kind of unconditionally. And so in that sense, the sort of like, it's valid to not medically transition is just sort of like a derivative point. Like, yes, of course, that's fine, but it doesn't really seem beside the point to me. And there is a kind of tension, right? There has been, there's so much trans infighting in the United States that kind of like, you know, takes up these weird positions between binary trans people or, you know, uh, trans medicalists, like these sort of abstractions (laughs) that are like attempts to sort of name, you know, genuine tensions that I think are much more about race, class, and like the suffering we all experience under, you know, neoliberal capitalism and are often about austerity politics and this fear that there's like only so much gender to go around. So we really 
better pick the right version of it to go all in on. And I'm like, I want something, I need a post-scarcity economy version of trans. And so that would just mean that there's bloody agenda for everyone and that the means towards, you know, a life full of whatever gender you want should just be freely available, freely available. And that just like literally means free, right? I, I just, I think like, again, demedicalizing or depathologizing transness is just simply saying that the medicalization of trans people is an illegitimate exercise of authority and power, that the supervision that medicine pretends it performs in our best interests not only is not in our best interests, it serves no legitimate purpose that I can discern whatsoever. And I can testify to this personally or as a historian. These doctors are fucking stupid. They do not <laughs> fundamentally know what they're doing. They make mistakes all the time. They do not care about their patients. They're very dumb about what the body can do. Trans people undeniably know much more than they do. So who's more legitimate here, right? How can we relocate legitimacy away from this institutional version, this institutionally ensconced and recognized version of trans or of gender, right? And how do trans people's own lives, you know, perhaps no longer have to be used to reinforce the broader system of gender. That can, you know, reverberate in arenas like, why the fuck is there an MF or sometimes now an X on your driver's license? It doesn't serve any legitimate purpose. It's not actually helpful for doing much of anything except maybe, you know, engaging in state-sponsored surveillance. So I don't want more inclusive categories on the driver's license. I want no gendered categories on the driver's license, right? So there's this sort of series of questions where I think material struggle recalibrate the issue to me and some of the discursive or categorical or taxonomical intramural battles over like this trans this or that trans that or like I'm a millennial so I'm just too old enough for like the valid discourse to really like mean anything to me personally but one of the things that I find sort of interesting about it is of course it's a very neoliberal version of like in a situation where we feel materially helpless one way to return agency you know to the self is just to suggest that everyone's radical singularity is valid. And we can sort of appreciate and applaud that validity without really having to do anything in the world. And that's a sort of, I think, comforting, empowering narrative, but it isn't really a site of material struggle. And so for me, trans is not really interesting as a descriptor of a unified people. Trans to me is interesting as precisely a catechistic kind of project about kind of radically shifting your relationship not so much to yourself, but to the material world, right? For me, you know, the question of what's interesting about transition is not inherent. It's about putting transition towards the end of shaking up the order of things and saying like, hey, you know what's fucked up? Is that I was thrown into this world, you know, without asking for it, with no resources to become the person who I want to be. And so I'd like to build a world that, you know, distributes the possibility of becoming in a much more radically equitable way. And that could mean both that I think people should be able to wander down the street to their bodega and get the hormones that they want, but it also means that there should be a kind of grammar of becoming that's not trans inclusion in the sex gender system, nor this kind of weird, everyone should just be whatever they want, which is not like a resource that's just sort of like a pie-in or like a platitude. And genuinely think about how trans people 
have deep, deep, deep insight into the problem of, of doing politics, into the problem of cohabitation, into the problem of sharing resources and breaking out of the scarcity, you know, kind of economy and its accompanying moral panics of American capitalism that have just ruined everyone's lives anyways. Trans people just have a particularly kind of intense point of view on that, I think. Well, Jules Gill-Peterson, thank you very much. Well, this has been such a joy. I appreciate I appreciate the conversation. Thanks for letting letting me drown on and on. Jules Gill Peterson is a historian at Johns Hopkins University and the author of Histories of the Transgender Child. Her next book, A Short History of Trans Misogyny, will be published next year by Verso. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, the bourgeoisie has torn away from the family its sentimental veil and has reduced the family relation to a mere money relation. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Our associate producer is Jackson Roach. We are recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tammuz Frankel and Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are the Ariel Francos and Ben Maybe. Huge thank you to Ari Brostoff and Kay Gabriel for their help on this interview. Thank you. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio and find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe to this podcast. If it's on iTunes, also please rate and review us. Those ratings and reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really does that is you telling people to check out the pod and to listen to the pod. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to help keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. Thank you.